welcome to the Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you for joining your hosts, Tierra and Jack, what is now episode number 99. Now, before we get stuck into this episode, we just wanted to remind you guys that if you do enjoy these episodes, please remember to repost them onto your social media. Also, if you are listening on the iTunes podcast app, it would mean a lot to us if you could please leave us a review. And if you are interested in checking out our coaching services, you can head over to our website by searching The Bodybuilding Dietitians on Google. You can also find the link in any of our Instagram bios and the podcast show notes. And as always, our services aren't just specific for comp prep competitors, but anyone with a health and fitness goal. Great. All right. So jumping into episode 99, which means we are almost to 100. Pretty exciting, right? So this one says, what's the most surprising thing you've learned about yourself during your bodybuilding journey? Cool. So this is an interesting one for me because I've been, I feel like I've been a very similar person in terms of my frame of mind and how I approach things for a very long time, even since like primary school and high school. And like, it's not like I suddenly had a change overnight and decided to do bodybuilding. It kind of morphed over time from like a fairly similar sort of standpoint just many years ago. And I was always kind of like a bigger person, not necessarily body fat, but just frame wise. I'm just a, even in high school, it kind of, as time went on, I, I got smaller compared to everyone else, <laughs> if that makes sense. Like everyone caught a, sort of caught up, but definitely in like primary school and high school, I was kind of regarded as like just a, a, a solid big guy. And <laughs> Which ain't a bad compliment to have, you know? No, it's not. And it probably helped me in my, in my <laughs> bodybuilding journey as well, having bit of edge like genetics that wise and I mean in retrospect all of that stuff was good like none of it was bad maybe I everyone got teased a little bit as a kid as well mm-hmm. but I definitely took it the wrong way at times and I was quite rigid with my food and how much I ate or definitely obsessive at times and in terms of exercise most definitely as well like I would do Every day I would have this routine with like push-ups and all that kind of stuff. And what I'm trying to say is that I guess for bodybuilding, I've always kind of fit that little pigeonhole in terms Mm -hmm. of a fairly obsessive personality with nutrition and fitness. And as I've continued to learn more over the years by my own research, going to uni, doing bachelor, masters, other stuff, it's kind of developed into, okay, maybe not so healthy obsessive patterns to very much evidence-based, putting the research into good use and for it to be a sustainable part of my life. And I think, sure, bodybuilding can be done. It can be done in so many different ways. It can be done recreationally where you just enjoy to train, you still eat intuitively, all that kind of stuff. Or you can kind of take it that hardcore mode where you train according to a plan, you eat according to a plan. I'm not like embarrassed or concerned to say that we've both taken it that second route Mm -hmm. more the kind of very structured approach and that's when I look back at my journey from childhood it um, very much fits that pattern if you know what I mean just in terms of my mindset all that kind of stuff it's quite interesting because I feel like you and I experienced a lot of aspects of bodybuilding that you know first-time competitors will experience before we even got involved in this sport, right? Like Mm. many, many years before. And 
that's the thing, right? We went through those years in high school of restrictive eating and body dysmorphia, right? And really struggling with our body weight, our body image, mental health to a certain degree. But we overcame that luckily before we actually got involved in the sport, which Mm. I think is really important to put out there because I don't want to give off the persona that, you know, we handled things really well once we got started into bodybuilding from the get-go just because we're perfect or whatever. Like we had our freaking years of struggle, right? Mm. Like we know what that feels like, right? To majorly restrict yourself and under eat and then overeat and then just have whirlwinds of emotions, right? And the binge eating and everything. But luckily we were able to overcome that in the years before we're actually like, okay, cool. Let's step on a stage and let's compete. Mm. Or that we didn't use bodybuilding as a refuge to to try and solve those issues either. Mm -hmm. We definitely had an intermediary period. Like I didn't start, I didn't know I wanted to do bodybuilding seriously until like 2016, Mm -hmm. probably January 2016. Before that, I kind of had that intermediary phase where my knowledge was better, still had some pretty poor habits. And then over time, it's just gotten better. And I guess to answer the question more directly, the boring answer is that I haven't learned any too much new about myself Mm -hmm. like because I've been so similar for so long if I had to pick something it would be that if if I think something's going to be hard and I get a bit anxious about doing it I'm still going to do it and give it a hundred percent no matter what can you give an example there sure lots of things like a a comp prep (laughs) and I meant not the process itself more the feelings of being hungry and being lethargic things like doing a really heavy training session and feeling a bit nervous for that, which I think if you're not nervous for it, maybe it's not challenging you enough. (laughs) Uh, It's still important to enjoy it, of course, as well. These are just my thoughts. And those are a few examples, but like, I don't even, I don't even consciously think about it. It's just like, okay, I'm giving this my all. There's, there's no really second thoughts there. I'm not going to, you just do what you got to do. Literally. There's no two ways about it. Right. Mm. You just got to get it done. Yeah. And that's probably what I've learned most throughout this bodybuilding journey. And I think I could kind of like apply that to study my studies as well. Like there was probably when I met you, it was probably that switch that flicked where I was like, okay, I'm really not looking forward to exam block, but like I would spend eight hours a day in my room memorizing a whole bunch of stuff for biochemistry. (laughs) Both of us in those two chairs, that little desk of yours. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, hell, you know, you fell in love with a girl that, you know, wasn't necessarily going to take you out to the club, but was instead like, hey, want to hit the library and then hit the gym? (laughs) Mm. Yeah, my, I don't think I've said this, but my, on the podcast, but yeah, I remember my grades before meeting you just because (laughs) I had the work capacity, but I didn't put it in after high school. And Which after- is interesting because you are brilliant, right? And you actually duxed quite a few subjects in high school. Well, you, and you got an OP too. Yeah. That's, yeah. I'm naturally not Einstein, but I, if, I, if I work hard, I can, I can get some decent results. Yeah, you got some cells <laughs> in that noggin. <laughs> and yeah, so after meeting you, like I, I put the work in and like I probably went from average of a five to like a 6.5. Wow. Well, that's very sweet. And, you know, I'm really glad that obviously we could help one another, you know, like, man, those years of uni, right? Like we were just, we're best friends, but like we just really pushed each other through all those years. And it's almost strange looking back because it went by in a flash. Mm. But I do think I'm like, man, like if I didn't have Jack 
who would I have sat with in all those lectures and who would I have studied with through SWAT back and who have I would have, you know, eaten my oats and then went and gone to the gym with and then studied again. Like it was yeah. a good few years. <laughs> Wouldn't have been as interesting. That's for sure. But I've got a question for you. Like, are you grateful for those years you went through prior looking back in hindsight, you know, even though they were a few years of struggle, do you really think that they've set you up now to be in a better frame of mind and to ultimately be a better bodybuilder? Maybe not a better bodybuilder, but definitely a better coach and dietitian because I see so many clients already who come to me with coming from a similar circumstance I was in, especially, and I, th- I don't think people understand that guys face this just as much as girls where they they just view it a little bit differently or they, they think about it differently where they might not want to gain weight and they want to look a certain way, but they don't understand how to achieve that and what they have to do. And then when you tell them, okay, you might need to eat more or do, do what's easier to get your results, mm-hmm. like constant restriction isn't the way to get your results. And then they end up, yeah, they're they're genuinely very happy and surprised about that. Yeah, exactly. And I think if you can use yourself as an example and as a coach really relate to your clients, right? Like you genuinely know what they're going through. You know how they're feeling. You know what sort of frame of mind they're in. And you can let them know like, I've been here too, right? And I know it's freaking tough and it does take time to overcome. But honestly, with hard work, you can do it. And that's why it comes down to, you know, there's a difference between having sympathy and having empathy, right? Like, I I remember when I did this counseling course in uni, there was actually this really good example showcasing the difference between sympathy and empathy, right? So imagine someone is down in a hole, right? Having sympathy would be peeping down into the hole and be like, man, looks pretty dark down there. That must suck, right? Like that's having sympathy on someone, right? But I wouldn't actually, even, that's, just, that's putting it a bit No, far. but what I'm trying to say is because a, lot of, like pe- disdain a lot of people use sympathy and empathy, you know, interchangeably, but they are different, right? So that's sympathy, right? Like telling someone like, man, that must suck, right? But actually having empathy would actually be getting down in the hole with them and actually being like, hey, you know, I know it's really dark down here, but you are going to make it through, right? So that's the difference, right? But that's that's honestly why I think like what makes a coach a good coach is actually being able to relate to your clients and truly understand what they're going through, right? And that's why especially the niche that you and I are in, right? In bodybuilding and competing, right? Like I feel like you have to have gone through it yourself to truly understand, right? Like I wouldn't feel comfortable coaching comp prep competitors unless I had gone through the journey myself and I'd actually stepped on stage too. And I truly know how every single phase feels and how much of a struggle it can really be. Yeah, undoubtedly. Like, I really think comp prep coaches should have prepped themselves. And Mm -hmm. if, like, you can't blame coaches, other coaches for, like, not going through what we went through. Yeah, dude, it's Uh, freaking tough. You know, takes one of a kind. (laughs) Yeah. So on that part, I I don't expect everyone to go through disordered eating to Mm -hmm. be a good coach. But other things like comp prep, yeah, I think you probably should prep yourself sorry you should undergo a preparation before being a prep coach yeah even if you do one and don't compete but i know personally like because i started struggling you know with a lot of disordered eating and body dysmorphia and stuff all the way back in 2013 during my like high school days and running days and stuff 
but I overcame that over three years before I got into bodybuilding in like late 2015, 2016. But I went through those years of struggle, but I feel like learning so much from that experience really set me up for success and having a much more positive experience across these past five years that I've been training in the gym and being able to apply all of these wonderful things that I've learned through our nutrition and exercise science degree in dietetics, right? And personally, I think that it's just given me such an advantage into truly having a positive experience during my competition phases, right? Because I can exit out of those phases feeling really good in a good headspace, right? And I know what to do. I know how to get my calories up. I feel confident, right? With putting on extra body weight. I trust the process. I understand, but I know that if I would have just jumped into this as a first time competitor without going through those years of struggle during high school, right? I wouldn't be the woman I am today. So like, even though it was goddamn tough, right? And those were probably the three hardest years of my life, right? I'm so grateful for them because I'm so much stronger now. Yeah, definitely. Like I'm very grateful that we both experienced what we have. Mm -hmm. And I guess you still have to answer your part of the question. Oh my gosh, we're 13 minutes in. Okay, well, the most surprising thing I think I've learned during my bodybuilding journey is that I am fully capable of training full body five times per week, right? Because even going through university, right, we, we were taught that, oh, you need to rest each muscle group to adequately recover from that training session, experience hypertrophy, and then be able to actually hit that muscle group again. So that's why I was always like, you know, like full body training, how the heck is that sustainable? How are you gonna recover? How are you gonna progress, right? But you never know until you try it, right? So, so grateful that I really kept my mind open because, you know, for the past five years, I have been doing your standard, like, lower body, upper body splits. I've dabbled in like push pull legs, pretty much done everything except for full body training. But this We're kind of at opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of our recovery capa yeah, capacity. Exactly. But the thing is, is that you really never know until you do try it. And I admit like now I'm definitely in an optimal position in order to implement full body training because I can take advantage of all of my recovery aspects, right? You and I can get eight to nine hours sleep every single night. We live in a low stress environment. We have low stress jobs. We're very happy. We're on solid routines, right? We can really optimize our nutrient intake. So like all of those boxes are checked, which really sets me up for recovering, right? Like if someone was sleep deprived, right? And they couldn't really look after their nutrition and like hydration was down and all these different things, right? And they had a very high stress life. I would not be telling them to train full body five times a week, like mm. heck no. But I think that's the main thing that I've learned this year is that like my body is fully capable of taking on that total amount of volume and I am able to grow very well and I am able to progress with my training. I really freaking enjoy it. So uh, I'm just really glad that, you know, this year I've really kept my mind open because it really has been changing to my physique in this short period of time. I feel like I've benefited a lot from muscle gain and also strength gain too. So mm. keep your mind open guys, right? Yeah. And I guess just a little side note, it is raining heavily where we are right now so sorry if that's coming through we've tried turning the gain down on our microphone but you might hear a few little drops but we must go on maybe it'll be some nice little background music but you know the show must go on so moving on to this next question it says 
Which vitamins and minerals should we be mindful of consuming? And can you please provide some food recommendations to assist with their intake? So Jack, as a dietitian, when you are doing a dietary recall with someone, what are some of the key nutrients that you find yourself kind of, you know, always pinpointing that, yeah, you know, usually this person or people in general aren't getting enough of in their diets? Great. So yeah, I guess we will tailor this question specifically for us. We're not basing it off research that is identifying common nutrient deficiencies in athletes or gen pop. We're doing it based on our own experience, which might even be more helpful for some of you. Mm-hmm. So probably the three or four ones that come to me first up is going to be probably iron deficiency or just not consuming enough iron. And as well as that would be omega-3 through polyunsaturated fatty acids. And the third and fourth would be calcium and vitamin D. So let's start at iron, I guess. Did you want to add any other ones? And then we'll talk about the sources of them. I guess if someone is following a vegetarian diet, you definitely have to look out for vitamin B12. And I think a few other ones would probably be something like vitamin E and zinc. Sometimes people just aren't getting enough of those into their diet. But I think the ones that you pointed out, you know, omega-3, iron, vitamin D, and calcium, those are usually the big, like the big culprits, right? Mm, Definitely. And Probably what I see most commonly is an exclusion of dairy, either accidentally, like unintentionally, or they just think that half a glass of milk a day is enough mm-hmm. to, to suit their dairy requirements. Or like a sprinkle of Parmesan or something, <laughs> right? Yeah, some stuff like that. And the big one, the two big ones there are going to be calcium and vitamin B12. And the surprising thing is that Calcium is, you need a decent amount of that per day. It's mm-hmm. a full 1,000 milligrams for most people. Mm-hmm. So unless you are taking a supplement, which most supplements don't have enough calcium unless they are a calcium supplement, then you're probably not going to be getting enough calcium per day, which is incredibly important for bone health. So try and, try and assess how much dairy you are having in accordance to their recommendations. And I guess some really easy sources of, of calcium are milk, fortified almond milk, fortified soy milk with calcium, and obviously just regular cow milk. And low-fat yogurt as well is probably the one I consume most frequently. I consume Mm -hmm. like 300 grams every day of that. Cottage cheese is really good as well. You know, Mm. hard cheeses are great too. And even things like if you have casein protein powder, sometimes casein protein powder actually has a decent amount of calcium in it as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the recommendations there are to consume around 1,000 milligrams of calcium per day. And that's the cool thing, right? Because like you said, you need so much calcium. So calcium could almost be considered as a macronutrient, right? Because you actually need around 1000 milligrams of calcium per day. In comparison to something like iron, you only need milligrams worth of that. Like Mm. the RDI for males is around eight milligrams per day. For females, it's around 18 milligrams of iron per day. Yeah, I get, yeah, that's very true. And moving on to iron, I think the trickiest part with iron is if you are vegetarian or vegan, it is really tough. It's really freaking tough, especially if you are a girl who regularly menstruates too, and especially if you're having heavy periods as well. But even if you're not, even if you're on hormonal contraception, right, and you don't actually even have regular periods, if you aren't consuming enough iron, it actually, like, it's one of the most common deficiencies in the world. Mm, most definitely. And the one thing I don't like about iron intake is 
the reality is red meat is going to be one of the best things. And I don't, I'm not a massive fan of eating a lot of cow and lamb and stuff Mm -hmm. like that because it's, it's not great for the environment. Mm -hmm. And if you want to get, put ethics into it, like that's your quota of ethics. And so that's why I eat kangaroo, like whether or not you see that as better than having cow. Personally, I do, which is why I have it. Yeah, because kangaroo here in Australia, it's all wild caught, right? They don't farm kangaroos and also has just as much iron as beef, Mm. right? And red meat, but it also has significantly less fat too. Mm. Yeah, someone actually messaged me the other day. I'm sure he'll listen to this, but he actually asked, is it okay to eat camel? And I'm assuming that camel is a red meat. Mm -hmm. So that seems like another, like it goes to show that other countries will have different variants to, to cow. They definitely do. I was thinking about this as well, because obviously I grew up in Canada, right? And in my family, you know, hunting is very normal, right? It's actually part of our family's tradition. So I actually grew up with my dad and we actually did a lot of deer hunting and moose hunting, bear hunting, duck hunting, you know, and I grew up actually eating these types of animals, right? From the wild, even Mm. things like squirrels and rabbits, right? Like I grew up eating a lot of these foods. So for someone who might live in Canada, right? Eating moose, that's totally normal. But then they hear about us Australians eating the kangaroos and they're like, that's pretty friggin' weird. But then we're looking over at them, we're like, you're eating your wildlife too. You're you're eating a bear, (laughs) right? So obviously geographically, that really plays a huge role in your diet, right? Like what is the norm? Mm, Definitely. And so let's, I guess getting back onto the intake, having red meat or like red meat, like three times a week, four mm-hmm. times a week is going to be your best bet and making sure that's uninterfered with the absorption. You, mm-hmm. you don't want to be having things like tannins through tea or coffee as well, mm-hmm. or even having things like calcium, which will interfere with the absorption. And you want to be having it with a vitamin C source to improve the absorption as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so for example, like at night when we both have our kangaroo like we have that with a bunch of vegetables like i have that with a big fresh salad full of tomatoes and stuff in order to have that vitamin c to help with that iron absorption but you know if you are going for other sources of dietary iron because red meat it does have heme iron in it it also has some non-heme iron in it too but non-heme iron it's just it's not nearly as bioavailable in the body compared to heme iron so that's when you're when you're consuming your iron through something like kale or spinach you know or some oats or something or some beans like that non-heme iron that's when it's even more important to really pair that with a vitamin c source Mm. but speaking from this you know like i've experienced this too if you're not eating red meat and even if you are eating all of these other types of foods you really can run into iron deficiency Mm. right so it is actually really important to stay on top of your blood work right get your blood work done at least every six months to actually check on your ferritin levels and the truth is a lot of the girls that I've worked with and I work with vegetarians and vegans right like even though we try our absolute best to maximize iron intake through their diets because they're eating it from a lot of plants right like they just aren't reaching Mm. those levels right the sources that contain the iron also contain things that oppose iron absorption Mm -hmm. like oxalates exactly and even foods that are fortified with iron like a lot of breakfast cereals are fortified with iron or a lot Mm. of breads are fortified with iron but what do you have your cereal with you have that with some milk or some yogurt which has calcium in it Mm. what do you put on a sandwich you put some cheese on there that has calcium in it like i guess if you are having 
cereals though, then do try and get the ones that are fortified with iron. Mm. Like it's still going to help. You're still going to get some in there for yeah. sure. It's not going to be completely blocked. <laughs> like I, I have, I had Milo cereal this morning and I think in a 30 gram serve, they have about the third, one third of your dietary intake for the day, mm-hmm. which is not bad at all. Considering 30 grams is a very, very small amount. Yeah. Uh, like most people would have probably double that. So. Absolutely. But you know, at the same time, if you can't get it through your food and your blood works backing that up, you might have to get onto an iron supplementation if your doctor prescribes and recommends that something like Farragrad C or a lot of my clients have actually had iron infusions before, right? Mm. And it's just an easy little top up, right? You just have like a needle stuck into your arm and it kind of just drip feeds some iron into you and you're, you're pretty good. Your, to- your levels are topped up immediately for quite a few months mm. the other yeah. um i was debating whether to say this but because it's not that evidence-based but the cast iron pans and stuff yes my grandparents do that right my grandparents for their but you just uh, don't know how much and like all but that still kind of like if you're always cooking things in pans right that's the thing a cast iron pan you are going to get trace amounts of iron in your food the only thing is that you you have to cook with oil right like there's no such thing as a non-stick cast iron pan mm. right just embrace the stick <laughs> no i've i've tried at my grandparents house seriously like trying to fry an egg with no oil on a cast iron pan say goodbye to that omelet no joke it's more <laughs> things like stews and yeah. stir fry and yeah or like kind of stuff yeah but yeah cast iron pans like it's really really smart and i remember we even watched this uh documentary in nutrition science once where like they were trying to reduce iron deficiency in this third world country and in that third world country they ate a lot of soup so what they actually did was they made these little fish that actually were made of iron right oh, I so those that, these yeah. these iron fish and then they would put them into the soup so that they would get trace amounts of iron from this little fish that kind of looked like a stone mm. and it would go into the soup and there you go just gotta not eat it so smart yeah all let's, these things all right so calcium iron we'll try we'll do these a bit faster let's get on to omega threes right truth of the matter is when you do a dietary recall with people like it's pretty damn rare that they are consuming enough of the best omega-3 source which really is oily fish right like there's no denying that wild caught oily fish is going to be the best source of omega-3 on this planet and the recommendations are to consume at least two serves of oily fish per week the omega-3 recommendations are anywhere between 250 to 500 milligrams of combined epa plus dha per day and if you have something like you know like 100 grams of wild caught salmon or something like that depending on how fatty the salmon is it's going to have between 1000 to 2000 milligrams of omega-3 in that salmon fillet right quite high yeah it's really good and that's why the recommendations can be have at least two serves of that salmon each week or that oily fish per week because we have to remember omega-3s they're fat right it's not like a water-soluble vitamin it's not like vitamin c or vitamin b or something like that like you're not going to pee it out it's going to be absorbed into the body and you can actually retain it for a few days yeah i 100 percent agree and to play devil's advocate on this one a lot of the fish that we do eat, say if you go to Woolies or Coles or your local supermarket and grab some fish salmon fillets, it's very unlikely unless they specify that it's going to be wild caught salmon. Mm-hmm. It's going to be farmed. And the issue is when it's farmed is that it won't contain the polyunsaturated fatty acids. Well, and, it does contain polyunsaturated fats. Well, mainly fats. omega-6. Yeah, it contains the omega-6. 
And the reason that is is because they get fed. They sorry, they get fed grain when they're farmed, mm-hmm. or mainly grain. What genius on this planet decided to feed a fish a corn cob? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> and in the wild, they actually obtain their omega three content through algae and mm. and stuff like that. So that's actually why, unfortunately, although you might think you're getting uh, a good amount of omega threes, you might not be. Mm-hmm. So it kind of begs the question, like. How do we get it in effectively and do we resort to supplementation for for this sort of nutrient? Yeah, farm fish, you know, it's a huge debate, isn't it, right? And like, that's the thing. Obviously, it's very, it's much cheaper to farm these fish and to actually feed them grain, right? So that they just grow and they get fat, right? Mm. But like it would, I've, I've read some studies where they're actually trying to fortify their fish feed with omega-3s. So they're still actually getting those in. But again, like the levels, they just vary so mm much right so that's the unfortunate thing that even when you do buy something like a salmon filet from your local supermarket right like who actually knows how much omega-3 is in there and how much omega-6 is in there and you need both omega-3 and omega-6 usually in like a one to six ratio but omega-3 is considered more anti-inflammatory and omega-6 is considered more pro-inflammatory and unfortunately in the western diet the ratio is actually closer to like 1 to 20 so people are consuming a hell of a lot of omega-6s compared to their omega-3s which is putting their bodies into a more inflamed state so yeah usually when i'm prescribing you know uh, fish recommendations to people i'm actually always an advocate for canned fish so i'm like Hey there, <laughs> do you like sardines? Do you like kippers? And if they do, hell yeah, I get so excited when someone's gonna get amongst a can of uh, kippers or sardines. But if they're not, then generally I'm like, okay, right, then in that case, we can either choose probably maybe to have an omega-3 supplement or we can still have you know, some oily fish from the supermarket. It's not like it's devoid of omega-3, but we just don't really know. Mm. Yeah, this is something where we differ Mm-hmm. In, in our approaches because I'm kind of just like supplement it it's easy you don't have to yeah, I mean, get crack, stinky breath yeah crack open a can of the good stuff I'd argue <laughs> <laughs> yeah so and there's definitely I don't see there's there's it's not about right or wrong either way mm-hmm. like if you enjoy the canned fish then go for it mm-hmm. your tin tuna isn't an oily fish though mm-hmm. like it's got very very little fat in it yeah. so it's not going to be high in omega-3 it's going to be mainly as Tierra said kippers herring, sardines, Mm -hmm. things like mackerel. And when you are buying it from a can, always make sure it says something like wild caught. Like I generally always get my canned fish from like Brunswick, right? Because it's like wild caught Canadian sardines or something like that. So just make sure it says that on the label. Like you wouldn't want to be purchasing farmed canned fish, Mm. right? but yeah, I guess I guess that's the go. And you know, plants do have some omega-3 in them too, but it's in the ALA form, which again isn't as bioavailable in the body. ALA, which is alpha linoleic acid, it has to be converted into EPA or DHA, which isn't, you know, it's it's really not that effective in the body. So even though these certain types of plants, like things like your walnuts, your chia seeds, your flax seeds, your flaxseed oil, your hemp seeds, they do have omega-3s in them, right? It's just, it's not even comparable to mm. actually consuming some oily fish. And another thing is as well, like grass-fed beef, there's this argument 
Oh, not an argument, you know? It's advertised that, oh, consume grass-fed beef, right? It's a source of omega-3s. Like, yes, it has omega-3s in it, but like 100 grams of grass-fed beef, right? Again, the amount of omega-3s in there is pretty negligible compared to oily fish. Like, you might be getting around 80 milligrams of omega-3s from 100 grams of grass-fed beef, whereas 100 grams of a salmon filet, again, you'd be getting 1,000 to 2,000 milligrams, right? So even when you see those things advertised for grass-fed beef, and you're like, oh, I'll choose grass-fed beef over regular beef for the omega-3s, like, uh, it's kind, it's almost like that argument for pink Himalayan salt kind of thing, right? Yeah. Like, is it really making a difference? It's so minute. Mm. They'll find anything to, to for a selling point. So mm-hmm. you can't blame them. Just got to, yeah, it's just tricking people, unfortunately. But. Yeah. And I guess, you know, just the final ones, quickly wrapping up, vitamin B12, right? If you're not consuming animal products, you need to get that either through supplementation or foods that are fortified. Like one of my vegan clients, she doesn't consume vitamin B12 supplements, but she consumes hella nutritional yeast that's mm. actually fortified with I vitamin that B12. A lot last prep. Yeah, nutritional yeast is awesome. So vitamin B12, you have to get it through animals or fortified products. And I guess another two would just be something like vitamin E. If someone's not consuming like enough almonds or enough avocado or something they might not have enough vitamin e in their diet and things like zinc too like zinc your zinc is should be pretty easy like yeah. whole grains and legumes yeah right. exactly and things like oysters red meat right um mm. even some oats and some pumpkin seeds have some zincs in them but yeah i i guess the main take home is that as long as you have a well-balanced diet and you're not going out of your way to exclude whole food groups right and you are consuming and a sufficient amount of calories and energy, right? And you're focusing more on what you can include in your diet than what you can exclude, then you aren't that likely to run into these sort of nutrient Mm. deficiencies. And again, these happen over chronic time periods. Like you would have to be like not consuming a certain type of nutrient for months on end before you actually start to show signs of deficiency, right? Yeah, totally. Awesome. All right. Well, I think we will wrap this episode up here, even though I think did we only get through two questions. Yeah, we did. But Seems again, to be a common trend lately. We're on a roll with these discussions, man. Love it. But uh, last thing we always finish on is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what did you learn this week? I went first week? last time. So. so am I going first this time? You are. Yes. Okay. Well, I actually learned that as a bikini competitor, right? We have to be very good at loosening up our hips and swaying our hips when we walk, right? And a lot of girls just have hella tight hips, probably because we train legs so goddamn much. And unfortunately, a lot of people do neglect like their stretching, their mobility and their yoga, right? But what I actually learned this past week when I was, uh, I had a physique consult with Joey Cantlin um, and I was talking to him about walking and you know about swaying my hips and he actually recommended that I buy a hula hoop, right? Cause he said that one of the great ways to actually learn how to increase hip mobility and move your hips is to actually practice using a hula hoop. So yesterday, Jack and I went to Rebel Sport and I bought myself a hula hoop. And now before- Very I'll, overpriced for a hula hoop. Yeah, it was like $14.99. We tried to go to Kmart, but like Kmart didn't have them or something. Anyway, I got this really nice hula hoop now. But yeah, now I can practice using a hula hoop before my posing lessons that I do with Steph every single week to really warm up my hips. And um, yeah, just really get used to, you know, swaying when I walk. So. 
that's what I learned this week. All the bikini competitors out there, hell, even just people who want, you know, to increase their hip mobility, maybe you'll get amongst the hula hoop. It's tough though, eh? Yeah, right? it's tough. Like we both tried, the first time we tried to do it because we're out of practice, we were probably really good as kids. I never just did practice. Fe- oh, well, yesterday I saw you try to practice and just <laughs> fell on the floor and you're like, what? <laughs> but uh, yeah, get amongst the hula hoop if you are a bikini competitor. All right, Jack, what did you learn this week? So I learned that there's actually these new type of bananas at Woolworths that they're selling. Mm. And I forget what they're called, but they're, they're not lady fingers because I don't really actually like lady fingers. They just taste like unripe bananas. But <laughs> Have you been eating the yellow ones or the green ones? <laughs> the, the normal ones, the spotty ones, they still taste a bit weird. But anyway, there's this new brand which is like, like probably only 60, 70 gram bananas, mm-hmm. which are perfect for me in prep because... Yeah, first world problems, but I don't want like a 150 gram banana in prep because like that'll fill up a large quota of carbohydrates. Yeah. So like it's nice to not have to like cut half a banana up and put it in the fridge and then it gets all brown and Or gross. put it in the freezer, but then you got to defrost it and yeah, yeah, it gets even soggier. <laughs> so these are like the perfect size for what I want to consume throughout the day. And they, yeah, they come in these little pack, wrapped packets, which same price as normal bananas as well per mm-hmm. kilo. So yeah. Cool. Well, guys, hit up the bananas, hit up the baby bananas. (laughs) All right, guys, thank you so much for tuning in for our 99th episode. If you did, also if if because we are up to number 100 uh, next week, so we and that'll be Christmas week as well. So if you guys have any recommendations for something special for that episode, let us know. Yeah, that would be amazing. You know, we should do something special, right? I guess we should do something out of the ordinary. But yeah, we'll put up a post, I think, on our TBD pages and our Instagram pages as well, just for some recommendations for how to really jazz up episode 100. Because we have now had this podcast for over two years, right? Today's the 17th of December, and we released our first episode in 2018 on the 12th of December. So yeah, well, guys, again, if you enjoyed it, please take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll catch you next week. See you guys.